The A to Z of Doctor Who, Part 3, C. Castellan from The Five Doctors, The. I recently spent a lovely evening with Paul Jericho, the actor who brilliantly portrayed an anonymous Castellan in The Five Doctors, at his cottage on the South Downs. Invited to interview him, but also to stay for an evening, I'd brought a DVD of a movie with me, uh, a 1990s horror called That Casket. As we opened a nice bottle of Merlot, I checked with Jericho if he had in fact already seen it. He shook his head. I have never seen That Casket before, he affirmed. I asked him if the uh, village newspaper reports were correct, that he'd been blackballed from the village fate committee because he'd cheated in Dr Thorpe's tombola the previous year. The doctor's lying. He wants revenge. Ultimately, I I had to ask him if it was okay to talk about the infamous mind probe sequence. No, not the mind probe. Fair enough, I said. Let's just watch the movie and have a nice drink. We enjoyed the film, sitting in companionable silence and occasionally chuckling together at the funny bits or at some low production values. At the end of the night, I asked him, why people mocked his stilted, stressless and unemotional delivery of his dialogue in The Five Doctors. I've absolutely no idea, he said, shaking his head, a single solitary tear snaking its way down his once proud cheek. Castrovalva With the benefit of hindsight, you have to ask yourself who exactly was it who thought that the best way to draw a line under the Tom Baker era and present an utterly new hero to the TV-watching public was to have Davison's pleasant, open-faced fifth doctor lying insensible on the floor of Studio B for two episodes. There's an electrifying moment in part one where, after some quite good impersonations of previous incarnations, the fifth doctor rounds on Adric and says, "'Don't you understand? The regeneration is failing.' I think we've all had a couple of hangovers that have felt the same." The story also gave us Anthony Ainley in top form, playing a ghostly wise old man called the Portreeve, in addition to his nascent performance as the Master, which reached new levels of villainy here as he trapped Adric in a a mesh of thin, flimsy-looking wires and used his mathematical genius to um, make a tapestry. Meanwhile, the Doctor, Nyssa and Tegan spent their time in Castrovalva battling a recursive occlusion, running along uh, two bits of corridor which seemed bafflingly linked, almost as if the entire set was simply comprised of three rooms and two corridors. Oh, hang on. Chelonians, the... An oft-recycled criticism of the new series is that there have been no memorable returning villains or monsters created in ten years of television with a sort of grumbling concession that the weeping angels are as good as it's got. Yet Gareth Roberts' new adventure novels, featuring the Chelonians, a race of warmongering turtles, have demonstrated that new monsters can be done well, and in a context which justifies repeated appearances. Also, the Chelonians are canon, because they were mentioned in the Pandorica Opens. Admittedly, nothing else from either the New Adventures or the BBC novels were on a level with the creation of the Chelonians, but just occasionally it can be done. I mean, are the Maya coming back? Are they bollocks? Chibnall, Chris. We enter the final two-year stage of the wait for Chris Chibnall's arrival as showrunner of Doctor Who, with fandom utterly divided over the thorny issue of who precisely could replace him. 
Fans are re-watching his New Who episodes with a, a new keenness and certain critical fervour which wasn't there previously. 42 has been cautiously reappraised as not completely awful. And there are those people who quite like dinosaurs on a spaceship. I've seen it twice, but I couldn't tell you what that one's about. But no one likes the Silurian one. That's pretty much where we are. No one knows what Chibnall would do with full control of the series, although if Broadchurch gives any indication, the Doctor would be exiled to a a Dorset seaside town and there'd be a long-running, highly convoluted story arc about the death of a major character. Oh, no, hang on, that was Moffat, wasn't it? Maybe Chibbers will go comedy. Maybe he'll go Hinchcliffe. Maybe he'll go for Hawaiian shirts and big cigars, but as we all know, he's no fan of JNT, publicly chiding him on live television in 1986 because he didn't like the trial of a Time Lord. And if there's one thing that'll bring down a TV executive's career, it's the hatred of a spotty git in a shiny suit. Actually, we do know what Chibnall is capable of because he was left to run the 2006 Doctor Who adult spin-off Torchwood, which was f***ing awful. Clara. Clara Oswald made the Doctor into a man, giving the teenage Time Lord a very formative experience in a deserted barn. Then, nearing the end of his first incarnation, when he decided to run away from Gallifrey, Clara helped him pick the best TARDIS to hotwire. At regular intervals throughout his next incarnations, she would crop up to rescue him, whether he noticed it or not, until he finally met her properly in his eleventh body, when she became his companion, although he he didn't let on that he'd known her for over a thousand years already, and indeed sort of pretended to not know who she was and sort of specifically wonder who she was. Um, Yeah... They travelled together, and when the Doctor spent a thousand years in the town of Christmas defending Trenzalore, Clara was by his side too. Thus, by the time Clara faced the Raven, the Doctor had known her his whole two thousand year life. So anyone who doesn't understand why the Doctor was so upset he'd spent billions of years punching his way through a diamond wall needs to consider exactly how significant Clara is to him. His longest companion, his oldest friend and ally. Easily the hottest companion by a country mile. Now the unkillable Clara is having new adventures with the immortal me in an impregnable TARDIS. There's no real sense of peril in that format, is there? Cliffhangers. Few would argue that a major part of the success of the show for the first 26-year classic run was the weekly cliffhanger ending the drama on a moment of pure jeopardy which placed the Doctor or his current companion in mortal peril. Who can forget the radiation meter flicking over into danger on Scaro? Tom Baker being drowned by a vengeful goth. And I'm not talking about outside the coach and horses one night either. Or Peter Davison's So you see, Stotts, I'm not going to let you stop me now! When Colin Baker became the Doctor, the cliffhangers were part of BBC budget cuts and he was only afforded two weekly options, screaming and writhing as a dangerous device invaded his brain or shouting Perry in a slightly camp manner. Things perked up in the McCoy era with the dragonfire dangle, the remembrance rumination, I think I might have miscalculated, and the Fenric fear fillet, we play the contest again, Time Lord. RTD and the Grand Moff have experimented with reviving the tradition in New Who, 
but in the RTD era, you just got Tennant waving his bloody screwdriver around. The stolen ends cliffhanger, while gratuitous, felt at the time like the most exciting thing ever, and the end of the Pandorica Opens was mind-blowing. But for the most part, cliffhangers just aren't as blood-curdlingly exciting for me as they used to be, possibly because I'm no longer seven years old. Curse of the Black Spot Some people seem to think that this season six episode was egregiously bad. With the benefit of hindsight, it's hard to recall the specific grievances. I mean, yes, Amy's cocky hectoring was a little bit much by this point, but it was a solid story with narrative cohesion, drama, peril, and a satisfying logical conclusion. If you don't like this, for God's sake, don't watch 98% of episodes from the Russell T. Davis era. Cybermen V The Cybermen were originally the inhabitants of the planet Mondas, Earth's twin planet, who had, like us, developed a love and reliance upon technology, which ultimately went too far until the entire race gave up their organic existence to be almost mechanical with concomitant loss of an emotional interior life. They liked logic, order, besieging small bases, and slowly evolved into a primarily warlike race of ruthless expansionists. Then, in 2006... Tom McRae reinvented them as a bunch of mindless idiots from a parallel Earth, who, under the control of basically Davros, as portrayed by Trigger from Only Fools and Horses, went the same way in a rapid yet graceless fall from intelligence. Something to do with earpieces that that make little metal handles around your head. The Cybermen escaped from the parallel Earth in Army of Ghosts, but were all sent back there in the tear-jerking final moments of Doomsday. Then, suddenly, somehow, next time they turn up, they're in space? Eh? Then there's some that... uh, But then, and porridge, and they can move really fast. The current Cybermen are a confused mishmash of two different and conflicting mythologies, but the only thing people can really agree on is the mythology of the programme's once-proud second-best monsters is now what TV theorists and academics would term a goat fuck. (laughs) 